Our scripture this morning comes out of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 27 through 31. Weston Haynes is going to be reading our scripture for us this morning. Weston Weston has been here at First Church for um, about half a year or so. A uh, wonderful young man. And uh, Weston, thank you so much for agreeing to, do, uh, to read our scripture for us. Again, our scripture comes out of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 27 through 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of, this is the, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Oh God, pour out your spirit upon this, your word, and as always, make it be for us the word of life that we might be people of life. And now, O oh God, hide me behind your cross that your message of love and grace might shine through for the redemption of the world through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. If you would have asked 15-year-old Leslie Broadbent what he wanted out of life, I would have said, I want to make a difference. I, I, was, I was wired, I know, I was wired oddly as a 15-year-old boy. But if you would have asked me what I wanted out of my life, I had no idea what I was going to do for the rest of my life. I, I suspected that I would grow up and, and come back to the farm and ranch just like my dad had as he was the youngest of six. I'm the youngest of five. I figured I would just follow in his footsteps. I also wanted to make a difference in the world, whether it was maybe, a, maybe being a school teacher, maybe being a, being a doctor. I, I, wanted, I wanted to help I wanted to help people. I wanted to make a, make a difference in the world. I wanted to, to live for something important. And then life happened. Life happened. Now, now you may be thinking, well, I mean, Leslie, you're, you're a pastor. Surely, surely you've been living for something important. Oh, I think, I think I have, but I also know that life happens. There's kids and there's cars, and there's jobs, and there's toys, and there's clothes, and there's mortgages. I have found that one of the deepest fears common among people is the fear of living for nothing. The fear of living for nothing. It's the fear that drives our workaholism and our consumerism and our quest to make it in this world. Some would say that even this fear of living for nothing drives us to our faith. But for many of us, many of us, we haven't explored this fear of living for nothing. We've, we've masked it over with our, with our busyness and, the, and our pursuit of excellence and the American dream and our, and our search for fulfillment. But I think what underlies all of this really is our, is our fear of living for nothing. And I found that these days of, 
of isolation and social distancing at a, at a slower pace have caused many of us to begin to examine what that pace of life was like before this slowdown. And we've had, we, have, we have more time on our hands now as we, uh, and, and, and many of us are choosing to, uh, to continue to busy ourselves, whether it's binge watching the, 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 the latest series on Netflix or whether it's being on social media constantly or whether, uh, whether it's being outdoors and keeping ourselves busy at all times. But for many of us, many, and I suspect most of us, we've had such such time to begin to, to look internally, and I found that this, this fear of living for nothing is beginning to, to bubble up to the top just a bit more. What if? What if we think we've been running this rat race, going from here to there, hurrying about our lives without, without, really, living, without really living for anything? What if? What if I've, I've put in all of these years and I've been living for nothing? Today we're, we're completing this series dealing with our fears. We have, we have looked at the fear of the unknown during this, uh, during this global epidemic. We've been looking at the, at the, at the fears of the unknown as we as we celebrated and remembered the 25th anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing and, and the impact that it had here on our church. Last week, we looked at, at what it might be um, for us to have a fear of being alone. And for many of us, we, that's, a, that's an intense fear. And, and, and for some of us, that's, this whole social isolation is, is causing a lot of that that kind of stuff to bubble up, and we wonder if, if we're ever going to have anyone really to share our lives with. But we saw last week when we're alone, we're not really alone. When, when we are alone, we're not really alone because the Lord is always, always, always with us. And so today we, we complete this series with, by, by examining this fear of living for nothing. This fear of living for nothing. This scripture that Weston read for us is a scripture that, that many of us, that many of us know and we love. Some of us have even cross-stitched this, this uh, scripture. Some of us have even given this scripture as a, as a gift, but few of us have really looked at the context of this passage of Scripture. Oh, we know, we know that those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength and they shall mount up with wings like an eagle. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And we put it on a little plaque and we hang it on our homes, but we don't look at the, we don't notice the context. Isaiah is a, an interesting book of the Bible. The first half of this book, or almost half of this book, is, reads very, very differently than the, than the second part of this book. Chapters 1 through 39, they, they, they read, there's a distinct change that happens between chapter 39 and 40. That's led, that's led most uh, scholars to believe that, that Isaiah was written by two different people. There was the, um, the, the prophet, the historical prophet Isaiah, that likely wrote the first half or the first 39 chapters. 
uh, and, and, or maybe one of Isaiah's disciples. We're not exactly sure. But then there is a, there's, a, there's a distinct change this, this distinct change in tone, distinct change in, in language, distinct change in setting as well. Even, it appears as though, a distinct change in, in the time setting as well. And so it's led many, uh, author, or many scholars to believe that, that beginning in chapter 40, uh, 40 through 66, it was written by someone else, a, a second Isaiah or a, uh, a known as a, maybe even a Deutero. Isaiah. The end of chapter 39, at the end of chapter 39, Isaiah delivers to King Hezekiah, who was the, uh, the king of, of the, the, southern, the southern kingdom, Judah, the, the, really the only remaining Hebrew nation, Judah. He, king Hezekiah was, was the ruler. And Isaiah delivers a, a prophecy that's, that's kind of a bad news, good news type of thing. Isaiah delivers this message and says, well, Hezekiah, you've, you've performed a, a, lot of, a, a lot of reforms here in our country. The bad news is that ultimately these reforms aren't going to make any difference. Ultimately, Jer- Jerusalem is going to fall. The temple is going to be res- uh, destroyed. The, the people of uh, these, these, these chosen people of God are going to be taken into exile. The bad news is that is that this, this whole thing is falling apart. The good news, however, is that you're going to be dead long and gone uh, before that happens. Uh, that's the good news of this prophecy. And so the last words of King Hezekiah in chapter 39 basically are this, well, at least it's going to be okay in my lifetime. And so then we begin that, that shift in chapter 40. It's as if now, in beginning in chapter 40, the, the prophet is speaking to those who have already been uh, sent into exile. It's as if, it's as if then, that the fast forward a, a number of years and possibly even a generation and, and, and hear these words, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord your God. So the people have been taken into exile. They've been taken into exile into Babylon. Now, the Babylonians had a, had a different kind of way when they conquered a nation. They would, they would do it differently than, the, uh, for example, the Assyrians that came before them. The Assyrians would just simply come in and kill as many people as they could. Especially, they would kill the, the wealthiest of the wealthy. They would take all of their money. They would take all of their land. They would lead then uh, the, the poorest of the poor who would then take care of the land so that they would be able to send all of that money into Assyria or the conquering nation. The Babylonians did it just a little bit different. They indeed would come in and they would conquer a land. They would almost always come into that capital city and they would destroy the capital city. And then they would carry away the best and the brightest. 
they would kill many of, the, uh, of, of those on the lower end of the social spectrum, but they would, they would save the, the best and the brightest and the, and, and the wealthiest, and they would take those and they would transplant them back into Babylon. And so that's what they did to Jerusalem. They swept into Jerusalem they destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They burned it to the ground. They knocked over every single brick that they could find, every stone that they could find. They looted every single building in Jerusalem. They tore down all of the walls, and they took the best and the brightest and the most educated and the wealthiest, and they, take, and they took them into Babylon. They took them back into Babylon. And we see this happen with Daniel and his, and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that we looked at a, a couple of, uh, well, just a couple of months ago. And so the, the Babylonians then would, would feed these, these new transplanted people. They would feed them Babylonian food. They would, they would teach them the Babylonian language. They would teach them Babylonian history, and they would teach them Babylonian culture. They would turn these foreign subjects into Babylonians who would then be loyal to Babylon. And after they had made that transition then, these, these foreign subjects living now on Babylonian soil were now Babylonians, and they would, begin to, they would begin to work on behalf of Babylon, and they would be appointed as governors over their former homelands, and they would become wealthy, and they would become, again, full, full Babylonians, working on behalf of, of Babylon. They became Babylonians. Now, we have some experience with this. We have some experience with this. For example, for example, Christmas is, a, is an important, such an important time in the life of the church, in the life of our faith. Christmas is a season in which, in which we celebrate God coming to us. We celebrate not just the, the birth of this little child, Jesus Christ. This was God come in the flesh. We celebrate the mystery of the, of the incarnation. This is an incredibly important season in the, life of, in the life of the church. But our culture has also embraced Christmas as an important season. And so they say, well, you like to celebrate Christmas. Well, we like to celebrate Christmas too. So let's have a sale. Let's, let's sell a whole bunch of stuff, and, and maybe you can buy, maybe you can buy all, of, all of that stuff. And so we as Christians, we say, oh yeah, I, we, we, love, we love Christmas just as much as, as anyone else does. And so, and so we, we buy our flat screen TVs for 40% off, and we buy lots of toys for, uh, for cheap. And, and, and we, I mean, we come to Christmas morning, and the, and the tree is absolutely chock full of, of gifts and and the, the Sunday before Christmas, the kids can hardly sit in their seats. And, and Christmas Eve, I mean, we're, we're, thinking, we're thinking not about the incarnation necessarily, but instead we are thinking about those Babylonian ways. We're thinking about the, the decorations and the, and the gifts and the chaos of that season. We have some experience we have some experience about becoming Babylonians, don't we? For the Hebrew people, this created a deep, deep crisis of faith. They were in Babylon. Their former home was in, 
was in Judah. The, the center of their faith life was, was Jerusalem. And, and now I'm, I'm, I'm simplifying this for time here. They believed, they believed that if you were going to hear from the Lord, you had to be in that temple in Jerusalem because the Lord dwelt in that temple. In fact, there was a small room in which the Lord dwelt. There was a small box in that small room in that temple proper that God dwelt. And now, now that temple was I mean, now Jerusalem laid in ruins. Now that temple was destroyed. Now where in the world did did the Lord dwell? How can we sing the songs of Zion in a strange land? The psalmist asks. Comfort. Comfort my people. I will restore Jerusalem. I will care for her. I will forgive her. I will restore her. Have you not known? Have you not heard the work of the Lord? But the problem was that the people had grown accustomed to Babylon. The people had grown accustomed to Babylon. Lots, lots, and lots stayed after King Cyrus allowed them to go back home. Most most of those were born in Babylon. It's all they knew. They didn't know the old ways of their fathers and mothers. They didn't know the old faith of their parents. They had become citizens of Babylon. The mortgages, the cars, the clothes, the toys, the depression, the anxiety, the despair has become so normal that we have become citizens of Babylon. But when we, when we live for Babylon, we are living for nothing. Did you get that? When we, when we live for Babylon, we are living for nothing. So life gets back to normal and we get right back in that race. So then when our way gets tough in Babylon, the only life we know, have ever known, has gone, and and now we have a new life, and we begin to then start thinking that God has abandoned us. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? We think that the Lord has abandoned us, and so we start living for Babylon even more. John Brueggemann, a, a sociologist, has written, has written a book entitled Rich, Free, and Miserable. Rich, Free, and Miserable. And, and he, he started studying the American dream and, and noticed in his own family, his own family, that, well, there are lots of advanced degrees Lots of wealth, incredible success in his, even in his own family. But he also noticed that there was a high degree of anxiety and depression 
a high rate of divorce, a a high rate of, of addiction, and even general misery, he began to realize that the American dream had failed, had failed his family, and the American dream was failing the people of America. He, he, noticed, he noticed that we've even started using economic language to describe everybody and everything. We have, we have so accommodated ourselves to Babylon that we now talk to one another now in terms of commodification, meaning, meaning we treat others not as persons but as commodities. You're no longer a person you're now a brand. You no longer have a, a witness or a testimony or character. Now you have a platform. Relationships are discussed in terms of profit or loss. Our, our children are an investment. We ask ourselves, are, am I getting the bang for my buck in this relationship? We measure our lives now in the currency of Babylon, but what I have found is that the currency of Babylon, you can't spend it in the kingdom of God. You can't spend the the currency of Babylon in the kingdom of of God. I I, I heard a preacher recently uh, say this to his congregation. He said, you know, he said, you're going to make it to heaven. I'm sure of that. I hope that, but I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm certain that, that you're going to make it to heaven. And I, and I suspect that one day you're going to be walking around those streets of heaven and you're going to look around and say, golly, streets of gold. It's amazing, absolutely amazing. The most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And, and, and St. Peter or whoever that is that's guiding you around those streets of gold, he's going to say to you, well, we had to do something with it. We didn't know what else to do with it. It's gold. You can't spend that gold here in heaven. Because the currency in the currency in the kingdom of heaven is not gold. It is not stuff. It is not success. It is not trophies. It is not awards. The currency in the kingdom of heaven is this. It is love. It's the currency in the kingdom of heaven. You can pile it all to the ceiling. Your awards and your accolades and your trophies and your money and your stuff. And in the end, none of that matters when you compare it to Jesus. When you compare it to Jesus. In the next few weeks and months, as we begin to come out of our isolation and we get back into the swing of things and we get back into the race and get back into the busyness and, and back into the activities and the quest for more and more and more and more, remember you can't spend the currency of Babylon in the kingdom and nothing, absolutely nothing in Babylon compares to Jesus Christ. Dear sisters and brothers, when you are when you're living for Babylon, you're living for nothing. In the rat race of life, in the busyness of our pre-isolation world, those times when well the kids were home, but we just We needed to work a little bit more on that project. 
and a relationship with our children suffers and we miss literally years of their life because we're living for Babylon. Our parents are aging and we can't, we just can't seem, we can't find time to go visit them. We're living for Babylon. When we're rushing our children from, from place to place to place to place, we're living for Babylon. But the Lord says this. You see, when you're living for the kingdom of, of heaven, when you're living for the, for the kingdom of God, He will give power to the faint, and to him who has no might, He increases strength. Even you shall not faint and be weary, and young men shall not be exalted, but those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like an eagle. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. When we are living for the kingdom of God, God will give us power. God will give us might. God will give us grace. Dear sisters and brothers, we must not, we cannot live for Babylon any longer. There are days that I love Babylon more than I love the Lord. God help me. May today be a new day in my life. May today be a new day in your life. No longer live for Babylon, but you live for Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me? Oh Lord Jesus, there's been a sense for many of us that we have enjoyed this season of simplicity and quietness and solitude but it's as if there's an addiction that is, that is bringing us back into the muck and the mire and the chaos of, of our Babylon help us to remember what it was like. Help us to remember what it's been like. Help us to remember what it's like to live for the kingdom, not living for Babylon. Have we not heard, have we not understood that the Lord is calling us into His presence to live for Him and him alone. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.